0: Previously on the British Broadcasting Century podcast. The BBC of 1923 has proudly made its first OB, and while Manchester, Birmingham, and Newcastle are ploughing their own way, length, the London station 2LO is certainly the flagship station. While its Marconi House studio is rather close to head office, up the road at Magnet House, and half the staff from HQ come and broadcast live from the studio. But with a sign on the door, BBC come in. People are, and some of these chances are hoping to broadcast. (laughs) This time we'll meet one of them, Leonard Crocombe, a magazine editor with a passion for wireless, a future as first editor of the Radio Times, and an even further future as grandfather to Radio 4's Justin Webb.
1: The real difficulty for the BBC is trying to work out whether it needs to be doing the whole range of things that it does at the moment. And whether if it doesn't do that range of things, there is then no argument for the licence fee because not everyone is benefiting from its services. But also, you know, the challenge of young people who get their news from TikTok. I mean, I'm not suggesting that's a good thing, mm-hmm. but it is a thing. Yeah. You know, you, you you are then asking them to pay for something that they don't use. Now, it may be that there's an argument still to be made to do that, but it's those sorts of things that the BBC's got to work out. There's kind of almost technical things about funding and reach in the modern world rather than, you know, is this government hate the BBC or does that government hate the BBC? Because it's always going to come into contact and and conflict with governments. That's not the issue, it seems to me.
0: Plenty more from Justin Webb to come on his new book, The Gift of a Radio, My Childhood and Other Trainwrecks. And he will tell us about his granddad, Leonard Crocombe. And I will tell him some things that he didn't know about his granddad as well. Plus, in our timeline, we'll catch you up with what was on the London station throughout January 1923 when the BBC was just three months old. Still a baby, although one that could speak, and did quite a lot. From Burns Night to Australia Day to the BBC actually getting its licence, it's a packed episode of the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul Carenza calling.
2: This
0: is London Calling. Hello, hello. Thanks for tuning in. Uh, well, you don't tune a podcast, do you? Thank you for uh, downloading, streaming, clicking a button and magically hearing my voice. Paul Carenza here to inform, educate and entertain about British Broadcasting's marvellous origin story. Now, regular listeners will know this is a three-pronged project of mine. This podcast, there's the play, the first broadcast, which I won't bang on about as much this time, other than to say uh, paulcarenza.com slash tour for dates and details do come. And the novel is the third prong of this um, fork. It will be called Auntie and Uncles. I'm still writing it right now. It's due out later in 2022. Um, It would be out sooner, but it turns out I've got a podcast to make as well, which is this one. And uh, podcast plus novel equals not much time left, let alone the stand-up and writing of things like BBC One's Not Going Out, which is just finishing its um, 12th season, I think. We start writing the next one very, very soon. And in the meantime, forgive any gaps of, you know, three weeks or so between episodes because I am juggling jobs. There's lots going on. If you'd like to be across everything I'm up to, linktree.com slash Carenza is the website. It takes you to links including join the mailing list. Updates are plenty there. Uh, this podcast is entirely done by me. It's nothing to do with the present day BBC or anyone else for that matter. It's all written, researched, produced, presented and promoted by this guy here. Uh, with occasional help from people like you, the newspaper detective, Andrew Barker. We doff our cap to him. You will hear some choice findings from him this episode. The comedy detective, Alan Stafford. Thank you, Alan, for your help as well. And the many others of you who chip in with either newspaper cuttings, rare audio clips, or a bit of support on coffeecom slash paul or patreon.com slash paul carenza. Thank you for your support. In the words of Spike Milligan, I shall wear it always. <laughs> Right, that's the admin out of the way. To the past, for what the BBC was innovating in January 1923. We left the London station broadcasting opera a couple of episodes ago, the first OB, where the opera stars of Covent Garden were intermingled with regular musicians back in the studio at Marconi House.
1: In between the first and second acts of the magic flute, we put on a banjo and a contralto. I don't know what they were doing. (laughs) Stanton Jeffries.
0: And Rex Palmer.
1: Oh, and handbells too, handbells. We all ought to blush for that even now.
0: Ah, the men who are making it. Now, this opera broadcast was the opening of an entirely new era in wireless, said Amateur Wireless magazine, and it was co-conceived by Arthur Burroughs, a name we've heard a lot on this podcast, first voice of the BBC, the first director of programmes at this point, even though, as in the last episode, he was up north when the broadcasts happened. But these outside broadcasts from the Opera House was the fruition of a dream of Burroughs, dating back to his memo to Marconi bosses in 1918. You may recall this from many episodes ago. There appears to be no serious reason why, before we are many years older, politicians speaking, say, in Parliament, should not be heard simultaneously by wireless in the reporting room of every newspaper office in the United Kingdom. The same idea might be extended to make possible the correct reproduction in all private residences of Albert Hall or Queen's Hall concerts, or the important recitals at the lesser rendezvous of the musical world. I don't know if the Royal Opera House at Covent Garden counts as Lesser rendezvous. In the January 20th, 1923 issue, here's how Popular Wireless described all that was going on behind the scenes. The duck's feet paddle away under the water to help the first outside broadcast glide onto the air. From the Opera House, Mr. Jeffries, musical director and manager of the London Broadcasting Station, phones to the transmission room that the orchestra is about to commence the overture. Power is switched on, the opening bars of the music crash out, and the broadcast opera commences but let us have a look at what is happening at 2LO. The Overture is being sent out to thousands of listeners all over the country, when suddenly Captain Lewis, who is Deputy Director of Programs, and is in charge of the studio arrangements at Marconi House, receives a message from Covent Garden that the Overture is nearly over, three more minutes only. Quickly, he arranges the artists in the studio, he grasps the switches in the transmission room, stand by, he calls to the operators, then over, the opera music ceases. Three switches fly back. A warning light in the studio lights up and the announcer gives out the title of the first item. Item follows item until the time approaches when another scene from the opera is to be broadcast, the which scene in Hansel and Gretel. Captain Lewis flies at the telephone and rings up the opera house. Hello, Jefferies, how much more? Three minutes, comes the reply. The studio is warned to be ready to close down the item now being broadcast. Close down, calls Captain Lewis to the studio. The artists stop and the switches connecting the studio to the transmitter are opened. Captain Lewis picks up a microphone in the transmitting room. Hello, hello, two hello calling. Stand by for the witches scene from the opera Hansel and Gretel, he announces. One minute comes from the theatre. The operators stand by. The microphones from Covent Garden are switched in and the power valves temporarily switched off. Over, calls Captain Lewis. The switches are closed, the valves light up and the next part of the opera is flashed through space. It is indeed a wonderful piece of organisation. And the technical staff and all who are responsible for its working are to be congratulated. Further behind the scenes machinations include John Reith negotiating with the opera company as the season went on, night after night of different operas being broadcast. The British National Opera Company were playing hardball on their conditions, you see, regarding broadcasting. So Reith met with the opera company boss. My first tussle, he called it, and he won that tussle. The opera company abandoned all their conditions and off Reith happily toddled to meet Nellie Melba about her broadcasting conditions. 300 guineas she wanted for them to be able to transmit her performance. Now bear in mind the Daily Mail paid her three times that for her famous 1920 Chelmsford broadcast. Reith visited Melba, haggled, was persuasive and she agreed to sing for nothing. Melba gave her Laboem live from Covent Garden on January the 17th, 1923, and Harrods advertised they would be playing the performance in their Georgian restaurant. Admission to the restaurant is free by ticket to be obtained in Harrods' electrical department. Reith had more battles over those mid-January days, though. He was summoned to the newly formed Performing Rights Society, PRS. Beastly people to deal with, thought Reith. The PRS boss was one of the most objectionable people I have met. Reith insisted that... All of this was promotional for the composers, infringing copyrights, they should be glad. Of course, PRS eventually won that fight, and they are still with us today, fighting to keep the music makers as money makers. Now another battlefront was the BBC versus artists' managers, concerned that broadcasting would steal their stars from the stage, and that radio would ruin theatre. Well, it kind of did. Now Reith insisted that broadcasting was being victimised, We have been fully aware of extensive campaigns to prejudice our musical progress. Incidentally, we have kept the information to ourselves. It was not passed on to the public, Reith wrote in his 1924 book, Broadcast Over Britain. He blamed those in charge of the live music business. Of a sudden, a new concern appears. Radio. Exploiting music to an extent hitherto undreamt of. There is a flutter in the dovecots. Something must be done and done quickly to put this seeming rival in its place. Notifications were sent by hand to the principal singers of the British National Opera Company that their services would no longer be required at certain concerts. Did they even take part that evening in an opera performance arranged to be broadcast? We thought this was essentially blackmail by the opera company and the performers should be able to perform if they wanted to. But of course the end result was all that listeners were judging it by. They didn't know any of this string pulling going on behind the scenes. And the opera broadcasts were convincing new listeners. Licence applications quadrupled that January. Like the famous pianist, for example, Mark Hamburg. Now, he was new to this wireless toy, bearing in mind that only about 1% of the population listened at this point. Popular Wireless magazine convinced this musician, Mr Hamburg, to try listening to this opera broadcast. And in fact, the first one on January the 8th. The magazine brought a radio set to his house. Mr Hamburg sat entranced. Quite clearly we heard the chatter of the audience, the whimpering of the violins tuning up, the joyous piping of the flutes and oboes, and the throaty gurgle of the brass instruments. A sharp sudden tap, the conductor's bat on, and the orchestra ceased their wailing, and a second later the overture to the opera came clearly to our ears. And when the overture ceased and the sound of clapping reached our ears, he cried aloud, Wonderful! 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 At dinner, Mr Hamburg had the portable set close by him on a chair, and so enjoyed his meal all the more to the charm of Mozart's opera. You know, said Mr Hamburg, if you brought this wireless set out two hundred years ago, you'd have been burnt at the stake. Here am I, listening to an opera being picked up by an instrument in a suitcase. No outside wires, no connections. Why, it's absurd. Mr Hamburg became quite excited as he stared at the portable receiver and the six twinkling little valves. A veritable box of concentrated magic. Mr Hamburg was especially interested in noting how the various instruments in the orchestra broadcasted. He was especially charmed by the purity of the tones of the flute and clarionet. Now that's a piano. Uh, more OBs to come, including the first Burns Night, but from one transfixed by the magic of this radio set there in 1923, To the same scene, but in about 1970.
1: I had a really strange, eccentric and and actually rather miserable childhood and a lonely childhood.
0: One of the BBC's top broadcasters, Justin Webb. Now Justin's new book is The Gift of a Radio, My Childhood and Other Trainwrecks. And it was The Gift
1: of a Radio at the age of about 11 that opened up um, my weird little home to the outside world, really, and the outside world in all its glory. I read in your in your, your book, The ITT Tiny Super. That's uh, the, it, yeah. uh, the radio <laughs> Where you
0: got, we found your, yeah. your way into radio there.
1: Bought only after huge efforts, and kind of nothing was done very uh, lightly in, in my home, and we didn't have much money, to be fair, as well. So the ITT Tiny Super, Transistor Radio, you know, which magazine was um, consulted and um I think my mother hoped eventually I'd listen to Radio 3 on it and classical music, so she wanted what she called its tone to be right. Um, uh, So a lot of effort went into the purchase of this thing, and I can still see, I can still still almost feel the ridges on on the front of it. It was such an important
0: part of life. Justin had a rather unusual childhood. He tells in his book of the various psychological quirks of his mother and stepfather, how he was first aware of his birth father when his mother pointed at the TV one night and a BBC newsreader, Peter Woods, and told him that was his father. Peter Woods had his own place in BBC history. He joined the BBC in 1960, presented Britain's first colour news programme on BBC Two. and Peter Woods is perhaps best known now for the Morecambe and Wise sketch of newsreaders like Aspel and Frank Boff singing There's Nothing Like a Dame. Justin Webb's dad is the one giving the deep-voiced final line. In amongst this unorthodox upbringing, The radio was there. In his book, Justin talks about his earliest memories of that ITT tiny super, listening to Harry Nilsson on 247 Medium Wave Radio 1.
1: From Jimmy Young, who was then on Radio 1 through to William Hardcastle on The World at One, when The World at One was in its pomp and suddenly people were using a thing called the telephone to just do live interviews with people around the world and no one thought it was really amazing and all of that sort of stuff I I was aware of as a as a child because I was desperate to get out of my circumstances and suddenly realized that you know the outside world was there and I also realized that I wanted to be part of it and I think that's the thing about radio and to an extent podcast but the 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 thing about radio, of course, is the jeopardy as well of live radio. And I think that's not going to go. I think podcasts like this one have have a place, but I think radio lives alongside them as a different thing and a kind of thing that does open up the world in a different way with an energy I suppose, that, that, that you don't necessarily get from listening to something that's re- recorded. So for that reason, um, it, it did the job for me. And I think it still does in many, even with the internet and all the rest of it, it still does the job today.
0: Justin joined the BBC in 1984 at BBC Radio Ulster. He was a reporter for Today Before You Knew It, foreign affairs correspondent. He broadcast from the Gulf War, Bosnia, the collapse of the Soviet Union and South Africa's New Democracy. He presented on BBC One Breakfast News in the 90s. Now he's most often heard anchoring the Today programme on Radio 4, the Marconi house of today. But does Justin miss those outside broadcasts beyond the studio? Not just an opera house around the corner, but broadcasting from far across the world. I I
1: did a lot of it when I was young. It's not so much the the danger, actually, although there is that aspect when you've got dependence, but I will say actually just the disruption of it. There was a great kind of glamour in being a, a reporter and a, and a broadcaster when you're young you can just nip off and suddenly be in a different place in a different time zone i remember once i was sent to to go and knock on ronnie biggs's door in rio de janeiro when the, the train robber lived there mm. and um i think there must have been some fuss about whether he was going to come back or not. he'd, he'd given an interview to a paper and i you know I, I woke up actually in brussels where i'd been for a bit woke up in brussels and finish the day in Rio de Janeiro and I remember thinking you know that's that's wonderful that's the kind of that's why I went into this because of the oddness and and the um excitement and the, the just you never know quite where a day is going to end but actually of course as you get older <laughs> exactly those things that attract you to it also repel because you just don't want to, and you don't want to have to tell your wife or your husband. Uh, <laughs> I can't come to dinner with those people because I'm going to be in Rio looking for Ronnie Biggs. It just becomes less of an interesting thing to do. And it's the same with wars, obviously. And um, you go off. My friend Jeremy Bowen uh, went off the other day, and um, I don't know. He doesn't know when he's going to get back, and I don't know when he's going to get back. And I, I, for me, that's not the way that I want to live, um, though I hugely respect those people who, who
0: still do it. More from Justin Webb to come, including on his grandfather, Leonard Crocombe, who was the first Radio Times editor, and something Justin himself didn't know, he was a broadcaster in 1923 as well. We'll hear the voice of Leonard Crocombe very soon. But first, back in January 1923, Justin's granddad hadn't been on air yet. The Radio Times was a glint in Reith's eye, Leonard Crocombe was editor of Titbits magazine, but he was an enthusiastic radio watcher. So let us be likewise and see what was going on through the rest of January 1923, apart from the opera. Old fashioned radio voice, take it away. Well Melbourne performing La Boheme on January the 17th was special for a peculiar reason. It was actually the last unlicensed BBC broadcast. Yes, the license only arrived from the Postmaster General on January the 18th. What kept them so long? So till that point, the BBC was essentially pirate. So La Boheme was the last of the unlicensed broadcasts from the BBC. The first of the newly licensed British broadcasting company was, after children's hour at 5pm, another live opera broadcast, The Valkyrie, taking up the whole evening on January the 18th, starting with a synopsis at 6.50. The next day, January the 19th, three things occurred of note. Up in Scotland, the Dundee Evening Telegraph confirmed the agreed site for the Glasgow station at Port Dundas Electricity Works. The aerial will be set up between high chimney stalks, according to our newspaper detective, Andrew Barker. More on the Glasgow station soon, but back in London that day, entertainers George Roby and Alma Adair were appearing on 2LO live from Marconi House, according to our comedy detective, Alan Stafford. Alan's been writing for the British Music Hall Society magazine, and he found out that a popular photo of George Roby and Alma Adair in Marconi House, and we'll link to it in our show notes, that photo dates from that performance on the 19th of January. Roby and Adair performed extracts from their review from 6pm before a live opera broadcast of Figaro, after the seven o'clock news. Meanwhile, that day at Magnet House, BBC head office, John Reith was bothered by a mysterious man, Mackay, about broadcasting market prices. That The idea of the Dow Jones and the FTSE coming to the airwaves hadn't quite occurred yet. January the 20th, popular wireless reports, Captain Lewis, deputy director of programs of the broadcasting company, has been personally conducting a series of experiments in voice transmissions from Marconi House, Perhaps it has been noticed that he has, during the children's stories and news, been varying the quality and speed of articulation. He hopes to be able to considerably speed up the transmission of such items. Yeah, so Captain Lewis was playing with his listeners, seeing what they could tolerate in terms of speed. When you see the 2 times speed button on your podcast today, maybe we can blame Captain Lewis for that a hundred years ago. Anyone could drop into BBC HQ and pitch an idea to be broadcast the sign outside the door said, BBC, come in. People were encouraged to, and they did. And one of those people who did just that, with a pitch to get on air, was Leonard Crocombe, grandfather of Justin Webb.
1: My grandfather, Leonard Crocombe, was the first editor of the Radio Times, and he was um, a friend of Lord Rees, who I think put him in that position. The Radio Times in those days was a a BBC publication, as it was until, well, relatively recent times. So, uh, he was a part of the setup. He had been a magazine editor of tidbits and various kind of very um, well-read popular magazines with funny little stories and jokes and things. In fact, he wrote a book of jokes, execrable jokes by <laughs> my <brother>. <laughs> Just <laughs> Absolutely miserably hopeless uh, mid-war pre-war jokes. Um, uh, and but he was a, he was a considerable figure and was obviously able to kind of turn a sentence quite. Quite well, I only met him once right at the end of his life. Um, and so I don't have any kind of memory of him as a as a person. But there's absolutely no doubt that on that side of my family, he did have a real kind of knack for, for, for doing journalism and,
0: and an involvement in the BBC. Yes. Leonard Crocombe had wanted to be part of broadcasting since the BBC began. He was a fan of Peter Eckersley. In fact, he petitioned him on 2MT Riddle, asking if he could broadcast from Essex, but Beckersley mostly just booked himself for the microphone or the occasional singer, or Eckersley will pretend to be that singer. So Leonard Crocombe instead wrote encouragingly about 2MT in his magazine Titbits. Crocombe then petitioned the Postmaster General as well, asking for a license to broadcast, but he was doing so in his capacity as the Titbits editor. He later wrote, They refused, it was an advertisement, I knew that, I kept on worrying them, however, until at last, probably to get rid of me as a pest, I was invited by the British Broadcasting Company to broadcast from 2LO. That turn was given on March the 14th, 1923, from the top of Marconi House. I contributed a talk, alleged to be funny, month by month, from each of the six stations of those days. Leonard Crocombe, your grandfather was broadcasting on London 2LO with a monthly show uh, in 1923. before the I didn't know that.
1: Mm. Huh.
0: And uh, it's in the, uh, the BBC Written Archive Centre in Caversham. There, it's got all the listings of who was on when. No, oh, you, you've told me something I didn't know okay. about. Okay. Uh, but reading out bits of tidbits, basically, pretty much. Right. Really funny stories. <laughs> <Yeah. you know. laughs> and they sounded somewhat like this
2: There's a servant girl waiting for one of these big lotteries, and she made a great point of getting ticket number 51, which, by the way, turned out to be the winning number, and she won about £30,000. Well, a reporter went down to interview her about this. And he asked her, he said, Will you tell me why you especially wanted ticket number 51? So she said, Well, sir, you see, it was like this, sir. You see, for seven nights, I dreamt of number seven, and seven sevenths of 51, so I bought the ticket.
0: And huge thanks for that clip from Oz Radio Historian on YouTube. Chris Long. Find that Oz Radio Historian YouTube channel for so many wonderful gramophone clips. It's actually from a gramophone record that he, I think he oh. cut in October 22, I think it was.
1: Yeah, well there we are, broadcasting mm. going way back in, uh, in, in my family and quite a lot of it in more recent times as well. But it's, um, yeah, it is extraordinary that he was there right at the, right at the start. Crocombe's
0: 1923 broadcasts would have sounded rather similar. March 14th was his first then. Later that same night, entertainer Gordon Marsh apparently did children impersonations, according to the listings. Although Leonard Crocombe gave a rather good child impersonation in some of his stories as well.
2: A mother had put her little boy to bed, and she was sitting downstairs sewing. And suddenly she heard a little voice from the top of the stairs say, Mummy, mummy, bring us up a glass of water, will you? I'm so thirsty. So the mother came out and said, you're not thirsty. We had some water before we went to bed. Now go to bed again at once. Well, a few minutes elapsed, and once more the little voice from the top of the stairs, Mummy, Mummy, bring us up a glass of water, will really. you? I'm so thirsty. So the mother came out and said, Now look here. If you don't go to bed at once, I shall come upstairs and slap you. Go to bed at once. A few more minutes elapsed, and once again the little voice, Mummy, Mummy, when you come upstairs to slap us, bring us up a glass of water, will you?
0: When Crocombe's monthly BBC broadcasts ran out, he moved to North America and broadcast there for a while in the summer of 1923, but then he moved back to Britain by the autumn, back to publishing and editing and writing about broadcasting whenever possible. But briefly, Leonard Crocombe was a broadcaster in Britain and North America, just like his grandson, Justin Webb, who was Washington correspondent and North America editor for the BBC, before settling back into London.
1: Yeah, um I spent um uh, some very happy years in 2002 to 2009 um I was uh, I was based there for the BBC and um, and there were the young families so you kind of get enmeshed in a place and I liked America very much my youngest child is a US citizen she was born there so we had this real um real liking for it and America of course is such a wonderful place to broadcast from because people are willing to talk to you and have a range of opinions and it's also culturally i think the really interesting thing the thing i, I really enjoyed about it was this, it's it's culturally so different to britain and we we look on it as as sometimes as being kind of just a bigger version of, of the uk or europe and it really isn't' There's, there are so many things that are so completely different about the way they think and the way they are um that it's it's an endlessly fascinating place to report from
0: as for Justin's grandfather, I will tell you more about Leonard Crocombe's tenure as Radio Times editor when we reached the Radio Times in, uh, well, it was in September 1923 that started. So at this podcast rate, we'll get there in about a year's time from now. But for those who can't wait, here's the potted version. Leonard Crocombe later said, Radio Times began for me with the tinkle of my phone bell one summer morning in 1923. The mellifluent tones of my friend Arthur R. Burroughs, then director of programmes, spoke to me. Would I lunch with him that day? He had something important to discuss. We met at Simpsons. The important matter that Burroughs wished to discuss was the scheme by which my employers were to publish the Radio Times in collaboration with the BBC. I was then as now the editor of Titbits. so I hurried back to the office, saw the ear of big business, Lord Riddell, and registered my own enthusiasm. Yes, so Crocombe's magazine owner was also going to publish the Radio Times. It had been decided by the BBC that the first number of the Radio Times must be ready for press in seven days. And by St Caxton, we did it. It was not many hours before our excellent master printer, Mr Bowser, was phoning to ask for make and copy to start work on. There was no time to work out an original makeup or to choose types, so the printer was told that makeup and types were to follow the style of John O'London's Weekly, a popular periodical. Crocombe decided on the What's in the Air cover feature. A bad title, he said. And he convinced John Reith to write 1,200 words weekly. Although issue number one was done by Arthur Burroughs. Now, only this week, I was down at the Radio Museum in Watchit in West Somerset, right on the coast there, and I saw a copy of the very first Radio Times, shown to me by the wonderful owner Neil Wilson. We will feature an interview with Neil and a future date on the podcast. But may I just say, if you get a chance to get down to West Somerset, right there by the beautiful seaside go to the Radio Museum, it's a marvellous thing. I've also done a special guided video tour, which Neil Wilson, the owner, was kind enough to show me. And we'll put the link to that video in the show notes and feature some audio on a future episode. Anyway, more about the Radio Times and Leonard Crokem as editor all to come as we propel forward on the British broadcasting century. But let's anchor ourselves back in January 1923 and have old-fashioned radio voice take us to the end of the month. To quote that Radio Times leader, what's in the air? Well, no wonder Leonard Crooken was interested in radio. It was innovating all the time. John Reith was on the lookout for new talent, especially of a spiritual bent. He met evangelist Gypsy Smith in early January, and on January the 21st, he invited him to give a radio sermon. But it wasn't all plain sailing for Reith. Three days after that, he attended the Radio Society of Great Britain, who were oddly hostile to the BBC. Reith had to win them over, and he did, or claims he did. The same night, January the 24th, saw the first late night dance music on 2LO. Oh yes, Judge Jules, eat your heart out. (coughs) The next night, a celebrated first. January the 25th, the first after-dinner speech broadcast for Burns Night. It was G.K. Chesterton, author of Father Brown, on The Immortal Memory, live from Prince's Restaurant, another outside broadcast. There's a piper, Mr. Marshall, and the London Scottish Choir at 9pm. A proper Burns Night. (coughs) The next day, from Scotland to Australia, it's Australia Day. January the 26th, 1923, saw Dame Nellie Melba give Children's Hour at 5pm. Yes, a celebrity children's broadcaster. Rather like CBeebies Bedtime Story Today with Tom Hardy. Easy, ladies. Then at 8pm, Sir Joseph Cook, the High Commissioner for Australia. And then Australian music till the kangaroos come home. John Reith dined with Miss Shields, his secretary, and he spoke to Sir Claude Schuster about broadcasting the King's speech. Hmm, one day. The same day, on a different note, the Times reported, many owners of portable wireless receiving sets have learned with some dismay that their license does not entitle them to carry their instruments to the houses of friends. Yeah, there was such a thing known as a peddler's license. It was quite rare. It was used by wireless firms and lecturers and demonstrators. They were allowed to transport their radio sets, but the rest of us, not so much. There were in-car radios, bizarrely, at this point. I'll tell you more about that next episode. And how about this, from January the 27th, popular wireless magazine, a taxicab fitted with an aerial is plying for hire at Nottingham. It's owned by Mr Frank Lees, an enthusiast in scientific research, and he's fitted the cab up so that patrons can enjoy broadcasting, with a two-foot-high aerial earthed by a cycle chain. Elsewhere in that same issue... Look out, CQ! I heard from a friend the other day that the wireless clique in his neighbourhood had been cast into an unseemly panic by the unexpected tour of the district by a GPO wireless inspector. All houses with aerials were visited and sets examined. Look out, you great unlicensed. Perhaps we'll have more about licences on a future episode. January the 27th saw one of the first radio talks on How to Catch a Tiger by Major Christie. Cecil Lewis noted... Experience has shown that the utmost the public can absorb with interest is 1,500 words, which takes about 15 minutes to deliver. It is only in very special circumstances that any talk is allowed to exceed this. They were finding their rules. Another special thing happened on January the 27th. John Reith met with Peter Eckersley to convince him to run for chief engineer of the BBC. But more of that and the fate of Two T. Rittle, next time. Then January the 30th, the first variety show broadcast, The Veterans of Variety. Yes, despite opposition from the theatre business. Our comedy detective Alan Stafford tells us, It was a small variety bill running at the London Palladium at the time. A type of potted, good old days Victorian musical. Except all of the performers were genuine musical stars who'd had their heyday in the 1880s and 1890s. The show was quite a hit. This is from Reynolds
1: newspaper whose correspondent was in the studio for the broadcast.
0: Henry V. Henson was there, talking with the audience, knocking vigorously with his hammer, doing his best as chairman to revive the departed glories of the old musical. Altogether, it was a very pathetic and sentimental company. This company voices from the old days, just not too late to make themselves heard through the most modern and wonderful of all inventions. The artists could not get away from the feeling that they were performing before a visible audience. They made gestures in front of the transmitting apparatus, just as if they were on the stage, and coquetted with their eyes as they do before the public. And in the beginning, they felt quite as nervous as if they were facing an audience. I fancy that the old voices and the old songs at least moved the older generation. So there you go, radio providing a link from the 1880s even, as those performances were broadcast, although alas, not recorded. In the building itself, where the concert was given, there was quite a scene. The porters remembered the performers in the days when they were young, and they were half in tears when they heard again the favourite songs of youth. Char women scrubbing the floors in the passage stopped work and listened in at the keyhole. The wireless assistants in adjoining rooms were, too, listening in for all they were worth, and all of them remarked with much feeling that the old songs could not be beaten. But there was a different story being told throughout January as well. And next episode, we will go back a few weeks and revisit January from the point of view of Peter Eckersley and 2 Rittle, as they finally close down their transmitters for the last time. And Peter Eckersley, convinced by the opera broadcasts, joins the BBC proper as chief engineer. Join us for the end of 2MT Riddle on the British Broadcasting Century, which bizarrely happens the very day before the BBC gets its licence. It's almost like British broadcasting is going official and nothing else. A final word from Justin Webb.
1: It's completely different from TV, I think, and and, and superior. And I say that partly um, because (laughs) I don't work in TV. But then you look at my colleagues, John Sopel and Emily Maitless, both giving up TV now to go back to radio uh, and podcasts, but also live radio, which I think they're going to do for, for LBC. Live radio just has a challenge and a fizz that TV doesn't. And for all the amazing work that my TV colleagues have been doing in in Ukraine, still are doing in in Ukraine, and TV can bring you kind of images that have a visceral effect on you from around the world, no question about that. But it's a sort of flat medium that's in the corner and you can get on with other things. And I think the the kind of um, uh, intimacy of radio, just isn't matched on the TV. And that's another
0: reason why radio really matters. I was listening to you broadcasting this morning and humbling to think only hours ago, speaking to at set and Dmitry and uh, Taras, I think it was the people who were there in mm-hmm. Ukraine. Yeah. And it does... It brings that world to us in a a way that is unimaginable, really. And a voice like the BBC's at a time like this, of course, is is vital, isn't it? Yeah,
1: I think that's true. I think the beginning of the pandemic, and I think now, there is a realisation that there's an argument for having um, a a broadcaster that is well enough funded to be able to do this stuff. I mean, that's brutally what it comes down to. Uh, If you don't have the money... We won't be able to do it. And America has a public broadcasting setup, but they've got no cash because they're not really properly funded. Um and they no way that they could match the kind of um impact that the BBC has or reach that the BBC has. And um I, I think that is important. I mean not to say that it needs to be uh configured in the way that it's configured and people can have their own view about that. It may not be paid for in the future in the way that it's paid for at the moment, but you know, at a time like this, you do you do realise that if it does have a value, the news side of it, then then this is it.
0: This shrinking, yeah. the way that media shrinks the world and makes us feel that connection with these stories. Watching Clive Myrie there, this is the presenter of Mastermind being the the news anchor for us there, speaking about a war which is being fought by the president of Ukraine, who does the voice of Paddington in the films of Paddington. So, yes, yeah. Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting that, isn't it? And I suppose that one of the things is you realise there
1: are transferable skills. In the media, and Zelensky is obviously a very brave and able guy, but he's also a communicator. And as a comedian, he knows how to kind of get get people and and get them on his side. And he's got phrases that work, and he's got this kind of sense of, of the ability to communicate. And actually, Clive, you know, in in a way, it's similar in in our industry. It's not it's not that Clive needs to employ any techniques, but he has a kind of natural authority about him. And he's also got a lot of experience. I, I've known Clive for years, knew him when he was a, a, a young reporter. In fact, he was a kind of junior reporter in the States when I was there for a bit. And he's, he's been around and he knows what he's doing. And he, I suppose it's, it's that sense of being able to transfer your skills from serious news to less serious stuff. Um, And bringing them all together. There are dangers, of course. I mean, you know, in in the old days, we were very po-faced about making any kind of transference from one to the other. But I think, you know, in the modern era with the skills that there are, um, I think it's unavoidable,
0: actually. I think people will do a kind of mishmash of all of them when you were talking about looking for ronnie biggs i thought if that were done nowadays that would be a podcast title of its own looking for ronnie biggs yes, because uh, right. you know, i got day. all the way there banged on his door and he didn't answer and i came home again that's a that's a 12-part audible series nowadays <laughs> i'm sure but there you are um well your your book the gift of a radio March childhood and other train wrecks uh, and, and you have been a gift to our radios so we thank you for that well that's um, really yeah. kind of you thank you for having me on Quick extra addendum thing to the podcast. I thought it might be briefly of note to chronicle the tiniest part of radio history that I've been partaking in this week. Pause for thought, that's the Radio 2 little two-minute bit of random religion and ethics that they do in the morning. Radio 4 has thought for the day. Radio 2 has pause for thought. Well, I had the honour, slash privilege, slash whatever you want to call it, of essentially closing the 9.15 pause for thought slot after, get this, 36 years. It's been at 9.15 on Radio 2, since April 1986, under Derek Jameson. Pause for Thoughters back then included Cliff Richard, Joyce Grenfell, Barbara Cartland. And I looked even back to 1970 when Pause for Thought began, when it was at five to nine. In fact, the first week of Pause for Thought in 1970 were by unnamed contributors, a doctor, a member of the Alcoholics Anonymous, that sort of thing. Week two of Pause for Thought back in 1970 did have named people, and the second ever named Pause for Thoughter on day seven was one Jay Savile speaking, apparently, on good manners, according to the Radio Times. I'm here to bring the good and the bad of broadcasting history, I suppose. As for me, as a pause for thought, I started about 10 years ago. Firstly, doing overnights in a comic relief week, which is why they got a comedian to do it when normally they get vicars, rabbis and imams. My first breakfast show, Pause for Thoughts, were under Chris Evans. Some of my colleagues have been doing it since Wogan. I've been up and down to Wogan House uh, doing it ever since, and of course from home for the last few years, now under Zoe Ball's tenure. And uh, it's been bizarre. I've done Pause for Thoughts to studios full of all sorts of people. Imagine delivering a two-minute inspirational slash spiritual message to Liam Gallagher, Mary Berry, Michael Buble and Russell Crowe. It's weird. Uh, the nicest celebrities that I've paused for thought to, to, uh, Brian Cranston from Breaking Bad, Jamie Oliver, Emma Thompson, and Jackie Abbott from the Beautiful South. They're all marvellous, marvellous individuals. The worst celebrities, I won't tell you. Uh, pause for thought continues, but now it'll be at 7.15, not 9.15. So that 9.15 slot is now closed. I have sealed that forever. Uh, but it is now on BBC Sounds as an app. We've got our own little area there now, so you can subscribe and listen whenever you want to pause for thought. Long may it continue as a slot. Anyway, it was lovely to be there last Friday in person for actually the first time since the pandemic for the last ever pause for thought at that time. And I got to see Ken Bruce by the coffee machine. And I got to give Zoe Ball a hug. And I got to meet a security guard who was fascinated by broadcasting history. Yes, so... I sent him this way, of course. That day I went straight to Rittle, in fact, in Essex, saw Jim Salmon, friend of the show, and he gave me a little tour of the Rittle sites. I went to Chelmsford, met a friend, Jane Humphreys, who gave me a tour of all the Chelmsford sites with Marconi. And we'll have a bit of those next time on the podcast, when we'll hear all about 2MT's final broadcast. Stay tuned. To this frequency. The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at BBC Century, but you won't find us on the BBC website because we're nothing to do with them, do you hear? Archive clips are generally so old they're public domain, but all bits that are private domain are generally the BBC's and used with kind permission. BBC copyright content reproduced courtesy of the British Broadcasting Corporation. All rights reserved, which means they get a nice little seat near the front. Stay informed, educated, and entertained, and join us next time as we raise a glass to the close- of 2MT Riddle, Britain's first regular broadcast station on the British Broadcasting Century.